basically what you're telling is there's two. There's some people who look at who, maybe three. Some some archaeologists are just doing archaeology. Some are doing it to try to prove the scripture, and some are doing it to try to disprove the scripture. If you have your Bibles, open them to Amos chapter five, and I want to read verse 24, where the prophet Amos says, "I want to see a mighty flood of justice, justice, justice." You are listening to season two, episode four. The special guest, Dr. G.B. Howell. Our topic today is biblical archaeology and the new Dead Sea Scroll fragments that were recently discovered. Stay tuned. Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Follow the Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler. A week or so ago, uh, there were some articles and some news reports of some new fragments found in the uh, over in the Middle East and uh, some more Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, really yeah, the first, yeah, the first findings of any significance in in uh, quite some time. And uh, there was um, a couple of Old Testament passages that were that were found, and uh, the similarity between them that were old compared to to our modern versions was. Uh, was really quite astounding. Uh, there, there may have been a few differences in letters and punctuation and a word here or there, but for the most part, it's the exact same as that what we have. And and um, my first thought when I saw when I read these reports was first of all Indiana Jones, and uh, and then uh, it was it was immediately to my good friend G. B. Howe, Doctor G. B. Howe, who was the the main editor uh, for the Biblical Illustrator. Um, through the Southern Baptist Convention um, for for quite some time. Before that, he was a longtime pastor uh, in Georgia, and uh, GB and I met um, in graduate school working on our doctorate. So I think, GB, that was, what, 1996 when we started? Um, yes, sir. Something like that, and then finished in 2000, and and uh, so we've been good friends since then. I consider GB one of my one of my closest friends. We don't talk that much or as much as I'd like to, but I still consider him uh, to be one of my uh, closest friends. And, uh, and so uh, after GB had earned his doctorate, he went back to school and got another master's. And this one was in biblical archaeology. And uh, through his work at the Lifeway, um, he, he was the editor of um, the CSB Holy Land Illustrated Bible. And so we actually have the author of the Bible with us today, which is which is really good. But <laughs> he doesn't want the lightning hitting him over there. <laughs> nice knowing you, Kevin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the illustrated Bible, I've got my copy, GB. Next time I see you, I want you to sign it for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's full of um, images and articles and stories about biblical archaeology uh, in the land of the Bible. And so... Uh, GB is an expert uh, in this field, and so I thought, man, I want to call GB and get his input on what is going on with this, because I know in the past uh, there's been some um, archaeological discoveries that have ended up being fraud, uh, but this one seems to have, uh, seems to be real, and so um, if you could see GB, just, he looks just like Indiana Jones, so just keep that image in your mind, um, and uh and and you will learn uh, you will learn from him. So so GB, welcome, man. How you doing? After that introduction, I I um, it was nice knowing you. Uh, <laughs> I just expect to be just charred any moment now. I'm doing great, and I am honored that you call me a really good friend. I consider you a great friend. I have said many times I would have never graduated my doctor without your help, and uh, 
I, I just cherish your friendship. Thanks for letting me be with you today. Yeah, well, it, 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 like I said, it's good to see you and good to introduce you to my friend, Kevin. Now, now Kevin and I met through scuba diving, so uh, that, that was our connection uh, together. So you're my intellectual friend. Okay. And, yeah, and Kevin's my fun friend. So that's, listen, so that, between the two of us, we've got your life covered. So that's right. That's right. Both, both <laughs> all aspects of my life are, are right here. But, um, you know, let's just jump in. Let's talk first about that new discovery. Um, you know, the, the new Dead Sea Scrolls, I guess, is what they're uh, calling it. I assume it was found at least somewhat near the same location as the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 40s. Is that sure. right? Right. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were first found uh, 1946, 1947. They're in that winter between the, the breaking of that year. Um, the story is told that a couple of little Bedouin boys who were cousins were tending sheep. And one of the sheep went into one of the caves that overlooks the Dead Sea. There was a community there um, dating back to before the time of Christ called Qumran. And it's a very dry, hilly landscape. And so one of the sheep went into the cave and the boy wanted to just scare the sheep out. And so he tossed a, a, a rock into the cave, hoping it'd make enough noise and scare the sheep and it'd come out. Well, instead of throwing the rock and hearing, you know, a, a sheep come out or goat, it, it, instead it heard the sound of pottery breaking. And so two boys went and investigated and they found these um, pieces of pottery, these large vessels, when, and I'm holding my hands up, it's about 18, 24 inches tall and probably about as big around as a salad plate. And um, in those were scrolls and fragments of documents that had never been discovered. We call them the Dead Sea Scrolls because they do overlook, as I said, the Dead Sea. Uh, they did not understand the significance of what they found. Um, however, they have been called the greatest archaeological find of the 20th century. By accident. By totally by accident. <laughs> <laughs> by a couple of boys and a rock and a goat. I mean, yeah, people spend their whole lives trying to find stuff in these two boys by accident. And so um, all of a sudden that area became popular and they found a whole series of caves, I actually found 11 caves initially in uh, discovery work that was done over the next several years. And what they would do is when they would find a fragment, they would um, give it the, a number, like it would be C4 for cave four and what the number of that fragment would be. And um, come to find out what we have are fragments and pieces of scrolls from Old Testament books and also from religious writings about how to live in a Jewish community, what the civil and religious laws of living in that community should be, uh, just a whole series of, of writings. But the recent uh, discovery that you're talking about that just in the last week came from what is called Cave 53. So that tells you we've wow. come a long way since Cave 11. Yeah. 
And it was called the Cave of Horrors because when excavators first went there, they found the skeletal remains of several bodies uh, as well as fragments. Well, no new fragments had been discovered since 1961. Um, they, there was a huge debate about do we publish these, do we publish these, and finally they were published. Um, but this was the first find since 1961 that has been verified as legitimate coming from one of those caves. Um, so, so that's significant by itself. And like you said, we have found, we, I thought we, they found in this cave, Part of the fragments, um, there were 80 pieces found all together, and part of one of the fragments is from Zachariah, and the other is from Nahum. And how had they dated these? How old are they saying they are? Oh yeah, sure. Good question. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated um, to about 200 BC, so we're talking about predating Christ. Um, and what happened was there was a guy who was leading a revolt against the Romans, a, a Jewish guy leading a revolt against the Romans in 135 AD named Simon Bar Kokhba is what he is nicknamed. Um, and it is known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. And so recognizing that the Romans were going uh, to come and come against Jerusalem once again, then he rallied forces and uh, the Jews hid all of these ancient hmm. documents, these scrolls in these uh, jars, these terracotta jars that had lids on them and hid them away in these caves. Uh, and so that's what they date to. That's when they got put in there. Uh, ultimately, Bar Kokhba, Simon Bar Kokhba was not successful and uh, 134, 135, all of the Jews were run out of Jerusalem uh, at that time. Wow. So, so now, is that, is that around the same date that they give the other Dead Sea Scrolls in the 60s? Like, they think they were all hit at the same time? They, they, they do. From what I, what I understand, they think that they were all hidden away at that same time. Yeah. Well, one of the things that interests me about this, this whole thing is, you know, the Bible, again, especially the Old Testament, but the Bible is full of these stories um, and events and different things that happened, and um, and biblical archaeology plays a role in, in um, uh, at least most of the time, I think, affirming what the biblical story, um, and uh, and so that means that um, you know it, it makes the Bible reliable, and uh, you know I'm still uh, I still believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. I know we're talking about the autographs or the originals when we mean that the the different copying. That have taken place over the thousands of years. Um, I guess there would be some room for error, but our, but my understanding is archaeology has over and over again shown that the scriptures that we have today are are reliable to what they had when they were first written. Is that right? Exactly. And part of what we recognize is that these ancient texts were written, even these fragments from Zechariah and Nahum, that they were written in Greek, except for when they got to the name of God, and there they would hmm. uh, revert to the Hebrew 
name for God, uh, which was just a great sign of reverence that they had for the holiness of God and his name. Now, and would that, so, would, that uh, would that have been what the Septuagint did, or, or is this stuff predating the Septuagint? See, I told you you're going to ask me a question. I don't know, and that's <laughs> one of those. Well, the Septuagint, for those who are listening, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Right. Yes. Um, thank you. That was done by the 70, 70 Jewish elders. And then, so it was based, I mean, Jesus knew Hebrew, but he would have had the Septuagint as well um, from that. And so I never heard that the Septuagint would translate God back into Hebrew. Um, and so, um, and so I don't, and so it's quite possible these, these uh, um, may predate the Septuagint. I think, I don't remember the dates. I think the Septuagint was a couple hundred years before Christ, if I remember right. right. You're right about that. And, and that is the text that Jesus would have read from, would be the Septuagint. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I, you know, reading the articles that I've read this week in preparation for today, that's part of what they did say is that this was something new and different they had not seen. Yeah. So regardless of which wow. came first, my point is that it shows the holiness and the reverence that they held the name of God to be at the time of that writing, which now, I think was it was, it, was the uh, Hebrew word, the word that was used in Exodus, do you know, the, that we yes. don't know how to translate because no one ever spoke it? The, the word tetragrammanon is the four letters. Yeah, um, we say Yahweh, but we don't really know if that's right. if that's correct because the Jewish custom was not to pronounce um, that I, I am that I am, not to pronounce whatever that Hebrew word was. Right. When you uh, also remember a couple of things, they didn't have vowels. You know, they wrote in Hebrew and they didn't have vowels, so they took the letters from Elohim and put those with the, the consonants from I am and came up with Yahweh. Hmm. The other thing is, that to me is interesting, you mentioned a while ago about how close the texts are. These, like I said, are written in Greek and in writing Greek, they didn't space between the end of a word and the right. beginning of a new word. And so if I said, for instance, Kevin is now here, the W in now can go at the end of now, or in English, it could go to the H in here, and it would say, Kevin is nowhere. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of what happened with the texts that they discovered in K53 is it helped clarify uh, part of that breaking of how those words were. Wow. Now just does for clear does yeah, it sense? does. And just for clarification, the correct thing is that Kevin is nowhere. That's the correct reading of that of that passage. Well, I, I'm not arguing, brother. <laughs> um, so okay, um, I listened, I thought it was pretty cool. I looked at part of what they translated from the Zechariah passage. Uh -huh. And I thought it was great for your podcast. Okay. Uh, from chapter eight, verses 16 and 17. These are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decisions within your city gates. Do not plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor. Do not love perjury for I hate this. This is the Lord's declaration. Yeah, wow. That's a good passage to be saved after all these years. I want to tell you, brother, it, we need to live by that today. Yeah, yeah. you wonder how much divine intervention is. Okay, let's discover these words right now today uh, with, exactly. everything, with everything going on. Uh, 
yeah, that's pretty cool. If you're new to Floods of Justice, welcome. And be sure to check out our Season 1 episodes on systemic racism, social justice, mass incarceration, and more. If you'd like to connect online, you can visit us at www.floodsofjustice.org. Find us on Facebook or engage with Dr. Kevin Riggs directly on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin. That's R-I-G-G-S underscore K-E-V-I-N. And now, back to our conversation. Um, interesting enough, the, there was a practice in Judaism in which they, when someone passed away, the family would lay the body in a cave. And after a year, they would go and collect the bones. In other words, the flesh and the organ would have rotted away and they would go and collect the bones. And they would gather those up and they would put those into a limestone box called a bone box. The, the, the real word for it is ossuary. And they would gather the bones and they would put them into this box. Um, and this was really common in Jesus' day. It wasn't practiced for ever in ancient Judaism, but it was in practice um, during Jesus' day when the guy says, first, let me go and bury my father. That's what he was talking about. Let me go get his bones out of the family cave and put those in the ossuary. It was really interesting. This came out in the early 2000s that a gentleman in Israel showed someone an ossuary that he had found at supposedly at a dig site. And it had been engraved in the limestone on the outside, which was not uncommon. They would do that on occasion. And the inscription said, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And so the gentleman who had it, his name was Oded Galan, um, he said he didn't understand the significance of what he had. But the gentleman who saw it immediately did, and it gained international acclaim and was put on display at museums and et cetera as being an ossuary that was used by James, James's family, um, and would have contained his bones. Well, the, the question became this, the, how legitimate is that inscription? And now if I can jump up in here by James, son of Joseph, you're, you're was everybody assuming this was James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament? That was the claim. Okay. Exactly. Good question. And so they, epigraphers, people who study ancient inscriptions, did a series of tests on this. And, and the question was, is the inscription legitimate? And so huge brouhaha and legal cases resulted um, the, the accusation was that the first part of this is legitimate, where it says James, son of Joseph. But some epigraphers said that the part that says brother of Jesus was added later. And they did studies on the patina and on the pollen and et cetera, everything that they could to analyze that. And, and like I said, it resulted in this 
huge legal battle that went on for years. And there are those who still uh, hold to the fact that yes, it certainly was. And those who say, no, there's no way that was legitimately the bone box for James, the writer of the New Testament book, who was also the brother of Jesus. Um, so Oded Galan ended up uh, being arrested when all of this was going on. He was later released. And, um, and, and so it, it went on for years. This certainly was not anything. It, it gained international publicity because of whose it was. But the thought of a non-provenanced, that's the word we use for something that we don't have the paperwork of exactly where it was found under a controlled dig site, right. that that is a huge problem in antiquities and in the antiquities market, not only for Israel, but for the ancient Near East and beyond. Um, the... the Iraqi, in Iraq, it is a huge business. A antiquities looting is a huge business. Um, the estimates are that probably the illegal antiquities on the market on any given day are between $4 million and $7 billion on any given day. Wow. And so there is huge money in this. Yeah, and that, that was kind of my, my next question, because I think, like, for me, you know, someone who has studied the Bible really my whole life, but for sure my adult life, um, and you, um, we find this interesting, you know, the, this archaeology and archaeological studies. But I think, you know, the average person may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Especially, you know, what's the big deal where people would risk going to jail um, you know, and would risk, um, you know, go to so much trouble to produce something that, that that's not true. And the answer is just because of the money that's, that, you know, that's behind this. It may sound strange in our culture because everything in the United States is new, relatively speaking. Comparatively, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that there are governments who set up um, departments for no other reason than to research these things and to study uh, the antiquities that are out there and then people who are going to, um, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of again, Indiana Jones and the, and he gets the Ark of the covenant, but then people want to steal it from him and all this stuff going on. And, and that kind of stuff, that kind of stuff actually goes on uh, in this market. Right. Uh, you, well, it's not nearly as dramatic. Uh, <laughs> I don't think nobody's find, face is melting. Right. No, you're not gonna find Harrison out there with his bullwhip. Um, so but, but yeah, as far as it being a wide open market, part of what you got to consider is that a lot of the people involved in this live in abject poverty. Yeah. And because they live in abject poverty and the requirements for going and looting are a shovel and a lantern. Hmm. And if I can invest whatever that would cost and feed my family for the next year, I'll be back in a few days. Yeah. Well, don't, I, I, don't come looking for me. Yeah, I haven't thought of from that aspect of it, but yeah, it's... Uh, and, and please understand, I'm not justifying it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's part of what they go through in their mind. Yeah. I think there is no excuse for it. I, I think that there is no reason that it's justifiable. It is stealing. Yeah, and, well, if, I, if I'm a shepherd boy, every time I see a cave, I'm throwing a rock in it to see what I hear. 
you know. I think you should, you know, and, you know, listen, you living in Tennessee, if you find something that dates back to 200 BC, brother, have you arrested? There's going to be some fraud work involved in this. I, yeah, I it, really, it really is. Cause in Tennessee, we might date back to 1940. That's about Man, it. You might get some moonshine. That's about it. <laughs> now you've gone to Madeline there, brother Sage. Uh -huh. America, Americans live in this bubble. We think we have, a complete understanding, the most enlightened understanding in this, you know, modern Christian age, yet you go outside of our borders and there's a completely different understanding to Christianity, to biblical tradition, to, you know, whatever it is. So I'm wondering what kind of, you know, from your experience, what is that bubble that we live in? Is there a, a separate reality once you get out there where you're like, no, no, there's people that, that accept these these as as fact this isn't just fable and fiction this isn't hollywood but but there is separate discoveries that we don't know about i think it's a great question and yes i think you're right um i think that there is a world out there i i, I hold to the traditional site of mount sinai which is in the sinai peninsula um and i've talked to our leading archaeologists i have a good working relationship with a lot of those and they hold to a traditional site. However, as you said, there has been uh, a popular move towards moving that out of the Sinai Peninsula into Saudi Arabia. But yes, the other side is there is a whole world out there that understands scripture and the land and the connection between the two. Um, we don't think that way. Um, Dr. Steve Ortiz is the archaeology professor at Lipscomb here in the Nashville area. And part of what he said, I found this quote the other day, and thank you, Brother Sage, for leading me perfectly into this quote. That was a great right. setup. That's flawless. He said, biblical authors assume their audience knows the context of the revelation, meaning the revelation that we find in the Word of God. Unfortunately, Westerners are far removed from the context of the revelation. Archaeology and biblical backgrounds help to place God's word in its proper context of revelation. Uh, and, and part of what he's saying is, Jesus said that Samaritan went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, we read that, and um, we that doesn't say anything to us. But in Jesus' day, that said something because most people in Jesus' day had walked that route from Jerusalem to Jericho. If you look at it on a map, it's a precipitous drop in that short span that literally is going down from Jerusalem, which is up in a mountainous area, down to Jericho, which is located down in the valley, in the Jordan River Valley below. Um, and, and we just, we read over that, and it, it doesn't mean anything to us, but in Jesus day automatically they not only understood what that meant but they knew what that felt like they had had mm -hmm. their leg muscles ache when they moved walked back up from Jericho going to mm -hmm. Jerusalem and, and they understood the threat of all of that and we don't we lose every single bit of that and and to me that's sad yeah I, I don't, don't misunderstand me I'm not planning on moving to Jericho to <laughs> my legs ache but it does, in a sense, archaeology makes the Bible come alive, is what you're it, saying. It really does. It, you know, that here are these dead things, but, but, but yet you discover them, and it gives a new insight 
a new, um, you know, a new way of looking at scripture, which may not be the new way. It may have been the way it was supposed to have been looked at originally. Right. Um, you know, and it opens up, opens up these uh, avenues of understanding. And, and I think what Kevin was, at least the way I, well, I took what Kevin's getting at is that you've got the scripture record, but then you have these people who live in these different villages who, who like the people who live there believe that this was whole, so holy, the, the site of Moses that they have it, they have armed guards to this day, you know, protecting it. Um, and, and it's kind of the same way with the Ark of the Covenant. I read a book years ago that placed the Ark of the Covenant um, in this little bitty temple in Ethiopia. Right. Um, and only one care, only one caregiver was allowed to go and take care of the covenant and he would kill he was licensed basically to kill anybody who tried to go into that room where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then no one could go in there. Uh, and then when he died, another one comes. So you, so you can never prove if it's true or not. Right. But yet the local people believe it's so true that they have these festivals around it and they have these, um, you know, uh, rituals that they go through. Um, and it doesn't matter what I believe or you believe. They believe that the Ark of the Covenant is in this little bitty uh, place in Ethiopia. And then you go back to the scripture record. And you can make a case that that is where, you know, um, the Queen of Sheba and, and Solomon gives, you know, gives everything, if I'm getting my story right, to the Queen of Sheba, which was Ethiopia. And, and so then it's like, oh, you know, it becomes extremely fascinating to me at that time. But that, but that the people who may or may not believe in uh, Christianity the way that we do, but yet they believe that their area is so holy that they're willing to kill um, and uh, guard with their life anyone from going in and, and, and trying to check it out. To me, that's another fascinating aspect of this, that they believe it that strongly. So whether or not it's the, um, it's the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, as conservatives, we can make a big deal about that. But as far as the overall story of the Bible, I'm not really sure if it's, you know, if it's the traditional or if it ends up being that over there, it doesn't really change the Exodus story and, and God's deliverance of his people after 400 years. Right. It, ultimately, um, it's about God. And ultimately, it's about God. And here we are. What if if you're a conservative view of Scripture? What six thousand years removed from um, from the stories, you know, in the in the Old Testament anyway, from Moses and the Exodus and creation and and uh, and all of that. And goodness gracious, um, <laughs> that's that's a long time. <laughs> even if you know, even if, even if you believe it that way, if it's millions of years, it's even longer. But uh, but the fact that these things have survived that long to me are fascinating and it does to me give credence to the scripture but there are some people um if you know any or if you know any stories of people who have tried to use archaeology to um uh, to discredit the bible first archaeology conference i ever attended um i sat in a series of lectures given by academics and one of the ladies who spoke uh was talking about the United Monarchy under the reigns of David and Solomon. And so I was sitting in the audience and just taking voracious little notes as fast as I could. And so she mentioned a scripture and I did not get the reference. And so I came up to her afterwards and I said to her, I said, thank you for your lecture. I learned a lot. I said, and I took notes. You mentioned a scripture, though, and I didn't get the reference. I don't remember now. It's been a long time ago. But I told her what it was about. And I said, but I didn't get the chapter and verse. 
do you happen to know that off the top of your head? And Kevin, she said to me, she said, um, no, I don't. And it wouldn't matter anyway. I'm an archaeologist, so therefore I don't believe the Bible. Well, after I picked my jaw up off the floor, you know, I was, I, I was shocked. But there are people who make it their point. There are people who try to minimize the reliability of Scripture. And interestingly enough, archaeology has never proven the Bible wrong. An interesting place, if I might um, chase a little rabbit here, um, is a site that's mentioned almost in passing in Scripture, and it's told in the story of um, David and Goliath. And after David kills Goliath, uh, this is what the Bible said. So when the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. Now, Gath is one of the five principal Philistine cities, hometown of Goliath. Ekron, one of the five Philistine cities, but where is Sha'arim? the road to Sha'arim. 2007 archaeologists went to a new site and dug and it's on a what happened is that when they found a site for building um, and the buildings got old and they crumbled they would build right on top and so you kind of got this little hillside this little mountain that gets taller and taller through successive um, centuries of habitation and so they said look there's one of these um, hillsides we've met are these hills we've never dug in before and so they started digging in 2007 and it ended up being significant and the word sha'arim in uh, Hebrew means two gates guess what they found in this site <laughs> two gates it's the only site that's ever been dug that has two gates wow. and it is located in the territory between Judah and Philistia, the area between where the Jews and the Philistines would have been. Yeah. And so this walled city excavation dated strictly to the time of King David. Yeah. And it authenticated that there were massive building projects in this huge administrative city a huge city for them is much different from us. It's about six acres. This walled city, administrative buildings that there had to be some um, governmental administration behind such a building project. In other words, Farmer Joe ain't going to go out and be able to build this massive city with two huge city gates. And so what it did is where there have been individuals who've tried to minimize who David was, and he was nothing more than just a, a, a local hero. Mm. It begins to give validity to the fact that he was this great and respected king. Yeah, wow, that's a cool story. One of the things that I remember and what little bit of reading I've done on this is, um, you know, a, a large portion of the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, 
Right. And people who were critics of the scripture were saying, well, that kind of Greek doesn't, that's, that's not, no one knows about that. And, and the Bible, the Greek in the Bible was, was this, um, language that no one really spoke in that day and time and then through archaeological discoveries they find out that okay you know like the one i remember reading about was they discovered some pottery and on the pottery was basically a grocery list and that grocery list matched the koine greek that the bible was written in and so that instead of that language not instead of that particular style of greek not existing that was the style of greek that the everyday common language person it wasn't formal greek it was just the everyday language of the people uh, of that time and so archaeology um, confirmed what um, what new what new testament scholars were saying and i like what you said that you know there, there may be things that biblical or archaeologists discover that don't necessarily fit in line um, or they don't prove passages of scripture but archaeology has never disproven um, or been in contradiction to what the biblical record uh, really is. And, and uh, to me, I find great comfort in that. Now, for those listening, we got a broad audience. Um, you know, no way are we saying that we worship the Bible, we worship the God of the Bible, not the Bible itself. Uh, but the Bible is the textbook that we use. And so, um, you know, that's the foundation of our faith, basically, ultimately, Jesus is the Word of God, right? He's the lo- Logos of God. Uh, but these stories or these discoveries, um, when they confirm what scripture teaches, then, you know, it just, okay, if, the, if it confirms what this part of scripture says, uh, now I can believe what other parts of scripture say uh, from that. And, and um, you know, there's really no other sacred text out there that has uh, that type of confirmation from archeological discoveries as, as the Bible. Thank you again for listening to Floods of Justice, where we discuss the issues of the day from a biblical perspective without the labels. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, you can go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash floodsofjustice. The link is in the show notes. Buy us a cup, buy us two. Any size contribution is truly appreciated. We are in the process of establishing 501c3 status where your donations will be tax deductible. But in the meantime, a cup of coffee is just fine with us. But, you know, and especially today, it seems like regarding the the vaccines, uh, there's there's a a difference in almost a rejection of science where you I would I would assume as an archaeologist, you accept science because you use it every day to date things, to, you know, figure out equations like there's whatever it is. And, And then there's a whole camp that would be rejecting science at all terms, whereas as believers, in my opinion, you can believe in science and believe in God and the two can coexist. And I'm assuming in your world, in biblical archeology, span you have found a way to marry and trust the word of God and science in that. Do you have any, any thoughts for people that are on the, on the fence or just on the other side of the fence? Part of what happens is um, I think that where we don't understand, we either can have not enough knowledge or we can misinterpret what we've seen. And so to me, that's what happens. Um, Sha'arim meant that word meant nothing to anybody until 2007. But all of a sudden, archaeology goes, oh my word, there really is a place with two gates that's big enough to have been built by a massive king by the name of David that is between Jerusalem 
and the area where the Philistines lived. And it is in the Elah Valley where David fought Goliath. And the people that ran from there went towards Goliath's hometown. But we didn't know that until 2007 when we found Sha'arim. So we're, that doesn't mean the Bible was inaccurate. It means we didn't have that information. Uh, now, back to the, the more recent discovery. I know when we talked before the podcast, you mentioned that, that you were really excited about some basket that was found in that cave. Explain, explain to me what the big deal about this basket is. Well, I knew I'd be talking to you in your basket case, so I'm, I was trying to make that connection. Um, so, yes. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. It was No, no, that's all right. Listen, there wasn't even any sport in that. That was just too easy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, yeah, part of what they discovered and it was the information was released at the same time with the Dead Sea Scrolls, was they discovered this massive basket. Now, part of the reason I got excited about this is because I've seen old baskets. Um, and I've seen old baskets that date back to the, uh, the time of Jesus and, you know, back to the time of the Exodus. You know, I've seen basket, old baskets. But they, they, these have not been huge baskets, you know. Um, they would be the size of maybe what we used to call a bread box that would sit up on your counter, smaller than a microwave. Well, then I saw one, a picture of this basket that they discovered, and it was not little like that. Um, they ran tests on it, and they discovered that the basket is probably a, over 10,000 years old. Wow. And it was sealed with a basket lid, and it is about 20, would hold about 24 gallons inside. So we're talking about instead of something the size of a bread basket, it's, you know, the size of an oven. Yeah. And so to me, that's pretty significant that, you know, we find this massive, it doesn't change theology. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a believer because, oh, look, there's a basket that's 10,000 years old. You know, but like you said, we think about in our country, something from the 1940s. Well, daggone, that's old. Ten, yeah, 10,000 years old. And to me, now this is maybe my simplistic way of thinking. But if in this cave you found um, some dead bodies, um, some fragments of scripture, and a basket, well, then that's just crazy enough to be true because who would think, okay, I want to commit a fraud, and in this cave, I'm going to put a dead body fragments in a basket. You know, it's like it's so arbitrary. It's like, it well, this has got to be legitimate. Exactly. Exactly. I would, you could not make this stuff up as they say. <laughs> That's right. You could not, you could not make this up. Well, tell us before we go, GB, some of the things that, you know, where do you go to for, to, uh, if you want to research this more, maybe a book or two, or there's some websites out there or some periodicals um that uh those who are interested in this can do further study what are some things you'd recommend i would recommend you going to uh, some websites for instance one of the places i i'm on their newsletter list bibleplaces.com just like it sounds and um, i get a regular weekly update of all of this this massive list of major developments and finds or changes in the archaeological world. For instance, it may be about uh, some archaeologist who's passed away. It may be about some new exhibit at a museum, or it may be some significant find um, related because related to what's happened in the last couple of weeks. WayneStyles.com, Wayne, 
S-T-I-L-E-S Wayne Stiles is somebody that I read regularly. He gives a great um, uh, blog about the biblical lands and he does that and ties it to the devotional thought. I, I read that every day. The historicalfaithsociety.com um, has got interesting articles and information related to the biblical world. BibleArchaeologyReport.com is another. Uh, but there are a lot of sources out there. And what you'll find with these um, sources are that many of them will link to another source. And so I think you'll find that really helpful. Um, get on their mailing list, get on their podcast list. And, uh, and I, I think you'll be glad you did. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin. Floods of Justice is part of the Tennessee Holler podcast network. Follow the Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler.